0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. You're listening to C-Suite Success Radio with your host and executive coach, Sharon Smith corporate success is your goal c-suite success radio offers you informative interviews with experts that will help you shorten your learning curve and accelerate your momentum to higher achievement c-suite success radio makes it simple and easy for you to tap into the wisdom of other successful business people who know the path you're traveling if you're ready for success in corporate america welcome to your new home at c-suite success radio and now time for your host and c-suite executive coach
1: sharon smith Welcome to this week's episode of C-Suite Success Radio. I am your host, Sharon Smith of C-Suite Results. Each week we focus on success, a word we all know and something we strive towards, but not a word that's easy to define. All of our topics and guests are aimed to help you achieve the goals you've set for your organization and for yourself as a leader, but more importantly, to help you accelerate the pace of your success. On today's show, we have author John David Mann, who is best known for his award-winning business parable, The Go-Giver, written with business thought leader Bob Berg, and his New York Times best-selling military memoir, The Red Circle, with former Navy SEAL sniper Brandon Webb. His most recent book, The Recipe, is a tale of heartbreak and redemption, a meditation on great food and secrets of the kitchen, and a life manual all wrapped together into a story that is being called an instant classic by former world heavyweight champion George Foreman, a timeless fable, with Guidance for Living That Will Last a Lifetime by bestseller author Daniel Pink, and the Feel Good Book of the Year by screenwriter James Justice. Let's listen to the conversation I had with John and learn how he defines success and the lessons he has learned to help you gain the edge you're looking for. Very excited to have John David Mann on the phone with me today. John, welcome.
0: Thank you so much. Great to be here.
1: Very exciting. I recently spoke with Bob Berg, your co-author of The Go-Giver, and we had a really great conversation about that book. I really enjoyed that book, and today I'm excited to talk to you about your newest book, The Recipe. Tell us what that's all about.
0: Well, the subtitle is A Story of Loss, Love, and the Ingredients of Greatness. And um, The Ingredients of Greatness is, you know, a little bit of a play on words because it's it's about— you know, cooking and a chef and kitchens. And so there's recipes and there's ingredients. And I knew going in that it was a story about the ingredients of greatness. My co-author, Chef Charles Carroll, he is not only a great chef, but he's a great teacher. He talks about the ingredients of greatness. He likes to give talks around the country, around the world, um, inspiring young chefs, young people from, from all professions about the ingredients of greatness. And, but it's also about sort of the ingredients of a great life. I knew that going in. But this other part, the loss, love and ingredients of greatness, the loss part and the love part, that's really where the story starts to unfold. And and there's a lot that goes on in the story that I didn't necessarily know going in. You know, sometimes writing is a process of discovery. You asked about the story. basic setup is this young boy, 14 years old. His name is Owen, and uh, he's just lost his father. His father died unexpectedly at a young age of a heart attack. And the boy is devastated torn up inside, angry at the world, circling the drain, grades going down, getting in fights at school, talking about expelling him. And uh, he's in a bad way. He lashes out in an act of vandalism. And to pay back the owner of the property, he has to go to work for this crusty old diner chef in this little cramped diner kitchen. In the course of learning about cooking, he, he learns about life. It's sort of like the karate kid meets master chef. That's where the story starts.
1: Where do you come up with these ideas, the ingredients of greatness? Your co-author talks about it, but where do you come up with topics and ideas like this?
0: I'll tell you where I came up with this story idea. It's the same place I came up with the uh, Go-Giver story idea, which is from from my (laughs) co-authors. You know, Bob Berg had the idea of this book. He he actually contacted me over 10 years ago and said, I want to write this book called The Go-Giver. It's, you know, like a play on the go-getter, only it's The Go-Giver. It's the idea of you putting giving, putting other people's interests first – it's not only a nice thing to do, but it's also pragmatic. It's practical. It's it's a it's a productive way to live a profitable life. And so we had this idea, and then we teamed up. He came to me and said, I, I can't write this. I need you to write it with me. We teamed up and, and, and co-wrote that book. Same thing here. Um, Chef Carroll approached me. We didn't know each other at all. He approached me and said that he was using the Go-Giver as a management tool in his kitchen, uh, teaching his, his staff. You know, Sharon, I, w- I went out to Texas and visited his his country club, where he where he cooks, and his kitchens, and more than once, I've been out there three, four times, and it's like going to see a dojo more than a commercial kitchen. It's really cool. It's like, you know, dozens and dozens of young people all over the place, and he is like a uh, to me, he's like an like a like an Aikido master more than a more than a a task master, and he he's passionate about mentoring people, about raising these young people to to not only become great cooks. Great chefs, but also to live great lives. He had the uh, the setup for the story. For me, as I go into developing the story and, and starting to f- flesh it out and write it, ideas just come from my own experience, from his experience, from my interviewing him, from my reflecting back on my own life, from wh- from all over the place, from wherever. It's the same with the go giver. So that when you what you get in the end, like with the recipe, there's a lot of Chef Carroll's life in there. Um, he's a you know, an eight-time culinary Olympian. He's won Olympic gold medals. He's traveled around the world multiple times. He's um, gotten commendations from five living presidents. I mean, he's had a magnificent life as a cook, as a chef. And there are a lot of little bits and pieces of his biography, of his life experience, that slip into the book. And there's pieces of mine too, and, and you know we get to a point where we're not even sure where he leaves off and I start, or, or vice versa. But you know the the short answer is I've written about two dozen books, and all of them the starting point is in someone else's life, or someone else has an idea, and then it's almost like a composer who writes a you know theme and variations. You get this theme you start with, and then your job is to start to play that out. Man walks into a bar. Great. Good setup. Now make a story out of it. And so that's my job. My job is now make a story out of it. And this is this is the story that we made.
1: When did you realize that you were such a great storyteller and you wanted to do that as a living, writing these books through story?
0: After a long time of doing other things, my my uh, the path to get where I, where I sit today is a long and twisted path, <laughs> a long and winding road. I started out in life as a musician, classical oh. musician. I played the cello and composed. Um, that was my, my original career path was to be a composer. My dad was a choral conductor. And uh, I did that for a while. And then I, I branched off into other things. My interest kept taking me places. I got into nutrition and wellness and natural food and whole food and macrobiotics and, and naturopathy and all that. And I, and I did that for a while and taught that for a while. And then I got into business and um, and was very involved in, in uh, direct sales for a while and, and wrote uh, and founded some journals in that sphere for a while. And then I spent a lot of years as an editor, editing other people's stuff. I, and I never... Once had the thought, I'm going to write books. What I what I did was I had a job as an editor, and my job was to take articles that other people wrote and make them better. And I did that year after year after year, and that's really where I sort of start developing the the skills of of writing. Is developing writing has two sides to it, two faces. If you're a writer, there's there's two different hats you wear, the, and I call they're like the Oscar and Felix hat. If, uh, for people who know The Odd Couple. I right. guess I'm dating myself. And you're okay. <laughs> um, so <laughs> there's the writing itself is like the Oscar side. It's sloppy, it's messy. You don't have an, any idea where it comes from. and You just sprawl it onto the page and you have to be willing to let yourself write garbage because you will. You can't write anything good without starting out with you know junk on the page. And then there's the Felix side where you go tidying it up and you go neatening it and editing it and correcting it and fixing it and improving it and elevating it. And you can't mix the two up because if you start trying to fix while you're in the creative process, you just you mess it up. You freeze, you put a freeze on it. And that's where a lot of good and great writers get just asphyxiated in the cradle and and never end up writing. So I had this blessed experience if I spent 10 years or more just doing the Felix thing with other people's writing. And I kind of developed that craft, that skill of improving stuff that was already there. And then I started getting approached to, uh, could you help me write this book? Could you help me write that book? And I did some ghostwriting where my name never showed up. I just did the writing of somebody else's book, and I tidied it up or fixed it up. And that just gradually, it was really the go-giver, was the the first major book that I I came out with where I really showed up as a, uh, not just somebody else's editor, but as a genuine co co-writer, team writer, because there's, the Go-Giver is, is like you look at someone and, and you try to find the DNA of their father and the DNA of their mother, and it's all mixed up in the person's face. Mm-hmm. The Go-Giver is like that. It, it's a mashup of Bob Berg and John Mann. You, 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 you sort of don't even know where, where's the Berg and where's the man in there. Uh, we, we click so well. I think it was with the Go-Giver, I realized that, you know, I like to say Bob Berg ruined my career.
1: <laughs> I'm sure he'll love to hear that. He, maybe he's heard it from you before. <laughs> I had
0: a plan, Ms. Sharon. I had a plan. I was on my way to Hollywood. That was my deal. I was studying screenwriting, and my plan was I was going to go be a screenwriter in Hollywood. And I was very busy working on this screenplay about the life of the Apostle Paul, which was a thing I was doing. And I'd been out to Hollywood, and I had uh, connections there. And I was you know, taking classes in screenwriting and, and movie production and so forth. And, and Bob calls me up with this thing. You know, I got this idea for a book. I need your help. And I was like, oh, man, this is a distraction. I don't, wanna, I don't see it. And I don't give her. I mean, I kind of get the idea, but I just I don't know. I don't know if it's going to work. <laughs> but I told my wife who was then not yet my wife. I told my, my fiance, you know, it's Bob. I love Bob. Bob is just such a great guy. And I, I got to at least look at it because it's Bob. So we went and we visited him and we kicked the ideas around a little bit and I came home and a few weeks later I had a little spare time and I sat down with uh, – he drafted a bunch of material, a lot of material uh, as ideas for the book. And I started with some, some thoughts we kicked around when we visited him in person and I, I started doodling and I made this, this scene and it's actually late in the book. It's the scene where Deborah Davenport gives a talk before an audience about, the, about authenticity. And I started playing with that and I wrote that out and I, I went like, wow, this is real. This is like, this is alive. This, this thing is, has breath, it has existence. And I sent it off to Bob and Bob freaked out. And <laughs> freaked out. And you know, Six weeks later, we had a whole book. Wow! And that was it. You know, sorry, Hollywood. Goodbye. And I'm so grateful because I would have been chewed up and spit out of the Hollywood machine. I'm just sure of it. It would have been terrible. <laughs>
1: oh, I don't know about all that, but I'm sure it's Bob's, a very tough industry to be in. It is a tough industry. And Bob saved my life.
0: He ruined my <laughs> career and saved my life. So uh, that was, you know, that was 10 years ago, The Go-Giver. And, and we've done two more Go-Giver books. We have another Coming out uh, next year, actually, that we just wrote this year. That's when I realized that this this is
1: what I love to do. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about the new book that comes out next year. But let's stick with the recipe right now. I want to know how is that book different from your other projects, the ones with Bob or anything else you've written?
0: It's different in two ways. It's a parable. You know, and a parable is basically a very simple story, and that's the purpose. It's supposed to be a simple story that teaches a lesson. But for a parable to work, in my book, you want the people to be real, the characters to be real. You know, you you don't want it to be two-dimensional and, and, and cardboard. So my effort in parables has always been to, to make it novelistic a little bit, make the characters come to life. This one is a little different in that it's it's more like a little novel. It's more fleshed out. It's a little bit longer than The Go-Giver. It's a little bit... Uh, richer in the sense of the the human story of it goes a little maybe deeper the love and loss parts of it. It's we've got movie interest in this already. It's you know it really would be a it would make a great movie. Oh
1: great! You can write the screen you can so, write the screenplay yay. for
0: it. Once the book you're out, all gotta set. Yeah, get, <laughs> get down to it and get back to Hollywood after all. There you go. So it's a it's a pretty rich story in terms of um, you know the experience that this this boy goes through. And it's also different, of course, because it's food. I mean, it takes place in the kitchen, a lot of it. And I love food, but I've never written You know, I've written books with a Navy SEAL sniper, and I've sort of learned the military experience. Well, this is learning the professional food experience, which was a blast. However, it's also unique for me. In that I'm publishing it myself. I've never done this. This is like Chef and I created our own publishing company to publish, market, promote everything from soup to nuts. You know, we are doing this as an entrepreneurial venture ourselves, and that's for me a whole new experience. Very terrifying, very exhilarating, very exciting, and and brand and
1: brand new, really. What was behind the decision to self-publish? <laughs> Rejection. Oh, no. <laughs> let's hear about it. Let's talk about it. Everyone listening has been through some kind of rejection. Maybe you have something to share with us where we can be enlightened.
0: Well, I do have a few things maybe. So let us let me go first. Let's go back 10 years. Uh, Bob and I had this manuscript for The Go-Giver. This is going to be relevant, by the way, to today. So bear with me for the flashback. We're here. We go back 10 years. The Go-Giver, Bob and I have written a manuscript. We have an agent. She loves it. She sends it off to New York publishers. More than a dozen of them turn it down and we are of course discouraged we can't believe it now it, we've all heard these stories right kentucky fried chicken colonel sanders you know tried knocked on like 500 doors nobody would buy his chicken recipe jack canfield and mark victor hansen tried to publish their book with a billion publishers and it turned out to be chicken soup for the soul and it sold 100 billion copies and so the moral of, the story, of those stories that we've all heard is when you get rejection, when you hear no, you just keep knocking the door, keep knocking, 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 believe in yourself, never quit, never quit, never give up, never give up, persist, persist, and eventually somebody will say yes. Well, sort of. <laughs> I, have, I have a different moral of the story because those first dozen publishers who said no, they were right. If one of them had said yes and bought The Go-Giver back then you would never have heard of it today because it, it wouldn't have sold much. It wouldn't have gained much popularity because it wasn't ready. Honestly, God's own truth here, it wasn't a very good book. It had the seeds of a very good book inside it, but it wasn't ready. It wasn't there. So we took it back and we revised it like crazy for nine months. Uh, every page covered with red ink. We took care- We took stuff out. We took scenes out. we ditched the whole last chapter and wrote a brand new one. chapter 14 you read today didn't exist before. We took a character named Raphael and we gave him a gender reassignment procedure. Today he's Rachel, Rachel's famous coffee. And we transformed the writing. We changed the writing, the prose, you know, on every page. We took it back to New York, got a dozen more rejections. And then finally one publisher said, you know, I want this. And now we're half a million copies later. Now fast forward again. Here we are uh, a year or two ago and... My agent read the manuscript for the, for the recipe, and she came back screaming. She said, this is like the best writing you've ever done. This is really going to knock their socks off. We're going to take it to New York. It's going to go to auction. They're going to fight over it. You're going to get a seven-figure advance. None of those things happened. We got a dozen rejections, just like with a go-giver, and then we got a dozen more, and the only difference was we never got to that one who said yes. We got more than 40 publishers who said we're going to pass. and And, and what they said was... The first one said, the very first one, I still have his email, said, I love this story. The characters are so rich. The boy is so poignant. The life lessons are so profound and meaningful. And and the kitchen scenes are just so vivid and making my taste buds tingle. It it doesn't really fit our, our model, though. It's like it's not what we do. It's not our category. We're business publishers, and this isn't really a business book. Hmm. And we, what we heard over and over again was, this doesn't fit our catalog, or we're not sure what category it does fit. Publishers are a risk-averse folk, like movie producers, like investors. Um, imagine that you're a, 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 an entrepreneur, you have a, what you think is a great idea for a business, and you go to a dozen investors, and they all say, I love your idea. I think it's killer. I think this product is phenomenal. I can't quite figure out who your target market is, and so I'm going to have to pass. That's what happened. That's what happened to us, because publishers are investors. That's all they are. Publishers don't market your book, at least not typically, not a lot. What publishers are is they're investors. They put up money to produce the prototype and and to to put it in the production line and to get it out in the world, and then it's going to be your job as the author to to make a market for it, and they couldn't see the category. So Chef Charles and I faced a crossroads. We have two choices. A, we can put it in the shelf and say they're right, and oh, well or B, we can roll the dice and take the risk ourselves. What we decided was we think we know what the target market is. And We think the target market is if you're someone who loves personal growth and you love food, this book is for you.
1: Ah, then I it's, will love it. <laughs> and there you go. I've,
0: I, so far, no one has come back to me and said, I love personal growth, but I could care less about food or the other way around. <laughs> no one has said that. That is but,
1: fantastic. But if you hate food,
0: if you don't like eating and you don't love cooking or you you hate the whole idea of food, this book probably, you know, won't hold your interest, you know. So that's don't interesting. Buy it, but-
1: I'm, I'm curious. You were talking about the rejection of The Go-Giver, which spurred you and Bob to rewrite, basically, the book and go back to market. And then you talked about the rejection from The Recipe, which spurred you not to rewrite the book but to self-publish. How do you know when it, the rejection means something's off, we need to fix it, and then come <laughs> back to market versus, no, this is great the way it is. I'm going forward on my own. How do you make that differentiator?
0: That's a beautiful question. It's a it's a really <laughs> practical question too, because that's you know that's the big question. You know, I said the thing before about Oscar and Felix. When you're first conceiving something, whether it's a book you're writing or it's a business you're you're brainstorming, when you're first creating it, you can't show it to anybody. In my book, Stephen King has this lovely thing. He says that when he writes a first draft, he writes it with the door closed. When he writes a second draft, he writes it with the door open, meaning. First draft, you don't even show it to your spouse. I mean, because critical commentary, no matter how well-meaning, can puncture this fragile, delicate thing that has no shell yet when you're just creating it. But once it's formed enough to have a shell and once once you've got it kind of solidified, then you want to take it and show it to people. There you want to show it to people whose, A, whose opinions you trust because they have credibility. They know what they're talking about. And, B, you trust them as a person. You have experience with them. That then goes to your question. Well, when you get back feedback that says, I don't think, what do you do? I think it's something that just comes with experience. Um, um, Neil Gaiman has this great thing he says. When a reader says, this passage isn't working for me, they're almost always right. When the reader tells you what what needs to be fixed and how to fix it, they're almost always wrong.
1: Interesting. (laughs)
0: Probably true for businesses, too. What we got a lot of was, we love this book. We're not quite sure it's for us or we know how to market it. We gave it to a circle of advanced readers, a small circle, maybe a dozen to two dozen readers. And we took a lot of feedback, and we did do a lot of rewriting, actually, as we did with The Go-Giver, because the first draft is never, never good. So I did a, a ton of rework on it, but we did get to a point where we said, you know, if we ref- if we redid this totally, if, if we made Owen instead of 14 years old, if we made him 24, and we made it about, you know, he's starting a business we could make this into a business parable and we have you know a dozen publishers that we know would buy it tomorrow it just didn't feel right it didn't feel like the book we'd written we decided that we took as much feedback as we could about making this book better but then ultimately we wanted to use to to sell this book and not some other book and we just got to a point where we said you know what we've got enough feedback from readers who Absolutely love it and say that they want to buy a case when it comes out. We've got people saying who can't wait until uh, the day it comes out. You and I are speaking now together, even the listeners hearing this maybe after the day it publishes. We're speaking just a few days before it publishes. I got people who are saying, Let me know the moment it comes out because I want to buy a case to give out as Christmas presents this year.
1: Well, that's exciting. It's ready. That's so awesome.
0: You know, we, just, we just made the decision that we think it's ready. We think that there are readers out there and we're going um, to the, – the only real question is can we reach them? Can we get – can we adequately get the word out there? And that's, that's just the entrepreneurial challenge of marketing.
1: What's the chance that after it gets out there and you start to get the reviews that a publisher will say, oh, wait, we do want it, and then they can take it further? Is that something you would even consider? Or once you self-publish this, that's you guys going forward and that's that?
0: That has happened. It's been known to happen, and it's not all that unusual. It's not common, but it, it happens, and it, it could happen. But, um, you know, we, we are okay either way. Uh, we, this has been, as I said, terrifying experience but exhilarating too, and we've loved it. It's funny because both of us have full-time jobs. I mean, Charles runs 75, a team of 75 in this country club, and I have got a full calendar writing. So we're both kind of doing this as a moonlight, but we're loving it. And if, it, if the book does well enough to, to count it as a success commercially, um, we'll probably just keep on going. And if a publisher comes along and says, I've got to have it, we'll certainly entertain it. <laughs> maybe maybe well right. and then there's going to be a sequel so oh that's we'll great see.
1: that's great I'm glad you brought up success because I'm curious about how you define a book as a mm. success or a failure what does that look like
0: you know it's funny because I have two completely different set of metrics uh, to, I look at every book as two things I look at I look at it as a book which is to say a form of creative expression. It's a vehicle for expressing ideas and emotions and, and myself. As that, I define success when I hear back from people in the world, especially people that I don't even know, I've never met before. When I hear back from people saying, this book touched me, touched my life, impacted my life, changed my life, helped me become a better person. That is a success. Have I got enough people saying that? But every book is also a business. You know, This is how I'm providing for my family today and into the future. So my aim is for each book I publish to generate a, a residual income stream that survives beyond the publication date. So for me to be a commercial success, a book needs to pay back its initial investment, whether a publisher or me, and go on to generate an income stream. Of the two dozen books I've written, everyone has been a success as a book. I'm proud of all of them. They've all got their their readers who who tell me how much it's touched them. Only a handful have been a commercial success. Most of them have been failures. Most of the ships I've launched have sunk, commercially speaking. Sure. And that's okay because as an entrepreneur, if you launch 24 businesses and four or five, six of them are, are, are successes, you're doing great. You're fine. The metric for this book you know, if we get a hundred reader reviews on Amazon, who say that they love this book and it touched their lives, it's I'm done. Stick a fork in me. We're good. Commercially, uh, I'd like to I'd like to see us sell a hundred thousand copies. Uh, when we hit the hundred thousand mark, then we'll we'll pull the trigger on a sequel.
1: Well, maybe our audience can help you at least with the hundred reviews on Amazon. I will make sure everyone. Can read in the show notes how to get a copy of the book. And obviously, if they end up getting it from Amazon, which I'm sure it'll be available on Amazon, they can then, well obviously, it's available on Amazon if you're asking for Amazon reviews, then they can leave the review. And I will also make sure you tell us all the ways that people can get a copy of the book. So I'll
0: just, I'll amplify that it's hardcover, ebook, audiobook, all three. It's there on Amazon. So.
1: Fantastic. And then Whatever we will like. encourage anyone who reads the book to leave that review and get to 100. That would be awesome. Love to be love to be a part of that. That would be a lot of fun. I want to look at success outside of books. Yes. I know it's what you do. You're a writer. And so it's great to have that definition for how you know if a book is successful. But how do you look at success in general? How do you say, oh, that was successful, even if it's outside of books in life in general? What does a success mean for you? What's that definition look like?
0: That's an interesting question uh, for me, because it's it's that has been an evolution. I was just thinking about this this morning. Um, you, you know, for years, I'm an ambitious person. You know, I've always got a hundred irons in the fire, and I love tackling impossible projects and and doing a really good job with them. It's like it's just I just thrive on this stuff. I started my own high school when I was 17 years old. Oh I, my and goodness! I, I was writing music when I was 13. I just love tackling things that I that look like they're impossible. I've spent most of my life in two mindsets. One is. Uh, identifying with whatever project I'm working on right now. Like, that's what 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 defines me. And living my life to some extent in the future. Like, I can't wait till this thing launches. I can't wait to see the 100 reviews. I can't wait to see the 100,000 copies. And there's a part of that which I'm in love with. I mean, I, I like the excitement of that, the anticipation. Uh, and I don't think it's a bad thing entirely but I don't think it's a good thing entirely either. And I'll say why. I like the electricity uh, of having that anticipation of having something to shoot for. At the same time, what I've come to to appreciate, especially in my in my golden years, since I'm over the age of 50, <laughs> I've come to appreciate is that there are more and more moments where I've, I've defined success by how things are right now at this moment. I used to spend in my marriage. I've been married three times. I'm now in my third marriage and all my life I've heard the expression three times, the third time's a charm. Right. And I've discovered that that has in fact been true. <laughs> that is, yeah. That's good to know. <laughs> it is, yeah, It was like two practice swings and my first two marriages <laughs> were wonderful in that they produced amazing kids um, and, they, and amazing experiences, but they didn't survive. My third marriage is just, I feel like I'm, I'm living in heaven on, on earth. It's uh, uh, my, my wife is my It sounds corny, but she's my favorite person on the planet. Mm -hmm. We just love each other's company so much. It's just, it's almost insane. And so we have a lovely time. And, you know, I used to always be kind of antsy, wanting to get back to work when I was spending time with somebody because I wanted to get back to the project and and toward that future goal. Now I discovered that when we're at shopping at a store or we're taking a walk or we're cooking breakfast or we're cleaning up for breakfast, I suddenly am standing there saying, oh my God. This right here is like paradise. This is heaven. This is success. If, if a plane fell on me right now, I'd be good to go because this moment as it is, is just perfection. And so for me, it's kind of a balance. I want both those things. I want to have the, the profound and deep enjoyment of the moment and the life that I'm in. Um, I love my room the way it is, and yet my wife and I have all kinds of ambitious plans to change our house. My definition of aspirational success is ever-changing goals and projects. My definition, my definition, uh, 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 I-, I crafted a definition for that what, what years ago, which is my mission is to write best-selling books that change millions of people's lives. I, I want to have an impact on a lot of people's lives and make their lives better. When I'm gone, I want my epitaph to read something like the world is a better place because he was here. I I think that would be just a gas to have that be the the fact. But my other definition of success is sitting here right now. I'm talking to you. I've got my seven pound poodle on my lap who has survived 16 years and may survive several more (laughs) and uh you know it it couldn't be better than better than it is right now
1: i love that what would you say to someone who's sitting here listening going but i'm not happy with what is going on in my life right now or i'm not in this place that john's talking about how do how do they come out the other side and and figure out what happiness is or success how do you fix that
0: I completely appreciate that because uh, there, there's, there's often dissatisfactions and discomforts, and they can reach a fever pitch. One thing that's, that's helped for me is some of the some of the pain I've gone through, honestly. Uh, six, seven years ago, eight years ago, my wife broke her left knee in 24 places. It was just devastating. It was just shattered like marbles. And they, she was told she'd never walk again, blah, blah, blah. It took a year and a half to get back on her feet. And then a, a year or two later, she broke the left knee again. Oh, my. That... There was surgery involved, there was rehab involved. Today, she walks like she's a 20-year-old. I mean, it, the thing is totally healed, but I'll tell you what, for, not only for her, but for me too, both of us, there is not a moment, there's not a time, I get up from my chair and cross my, my office uh, floor to go out to the, to the kitchen there for a, a glass of water or a cup of tea. There's not a moment where I walk through my house where I don't think, oh my God, I've got legs and they're walking. This is phenomenal. I've come to appreciate just the act of walking with both legs, this amazing right-left balance thing that we do, falling side to side, yet not falling down, Um, breathing in and out, the fact that I can see, I know people who can't, the fact that I can hear, I know people who can't, there are those things, a glass of water, I'm sitting here looking at this glass of water I got, and it's like, water tastes like nectar, Um, I think when you, when you've gone through and appreciated a certain amount of loss which is one of the words in the subtitle of the book the book is about loss and how you carry that forward to to not overcome it or get over it in air quotes or or ignore it or or forget about it but to 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 bring it with you to a place where you make make life deeper and richer for people sitting here saying my life isn't happy right now yeah it, it may not be but you can walk you can breathe you can drink water. There are just these miraculous things happening. And there is, I am convinced, for every person alive, there is, there is enough of a, a portfolio of those things, of those miracles, those momentary miracles, that, um, that you can find if you make it a practice, that kind of Zen practice. that You can find just tremendous appreciation in the moment.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because I'm not a physics major. I actually have never taken physics a day in my life. But um, uh, body emotion stays in motion. Same idea about momentum. When we can start to find even something general that we can be grateful for and then we can find the next thing and the next thing, it can it can get momentum on its own. And before you know it, if you're open to it and you're looking for it, more great things can and will show up in your life. But when we're focused on yeah. the negative, that's yeah. the momentum we generate and that's what we see more of. So sometimes it's a matter of finding, like you said, that one thing and it could be the fact that you have two working you know, legs or eyes or whatever this, it is.
0: There's an enormous body of research now on, on simple acts of gratitude and on the yes. practice of daily gratitude. There's this scene about the middle of the book, of the recipe, where Owen is sitting with with uh, with one of the, uh, the servers and... Um, Bernie is her name, and, and she, she says, close your eyes, and they close their eyes, and she says, you hear that? And he's like, mm, what he hears is a garbage truck two blocks away, you know, the screech of the brakes and the, in, of the engine, and she says, you hear that bird? He's like, what bird? And, she, and as she describes it, he realizes there, there's this mockingbird um, singing and never repeating himself the same way twice, and, and after she leaves him, he sits there going, wow, you know, we closed our eyes. She heard a mockingbird I heard a garbage truck.
1: Hmm.
0: And and for me, that was like what you're talking about now. That's a practice. You can actually practice that. And they've shown this scientifically now over and over again, that people who actually put into practice, you know, finding five things a day to be grateful for, or I just spoke the other day with someone who's, who has a friend who has every day for a year written five thank you notes to different people. I try to write a handful of thank you emails first thing in the morning before I go on with my day. My wife and I often sit down and say, what was the best thing that happened today? The simple daily practices will actually make you a happier person regardless of any change in your circumstances. And I think that stuff is, is tremendously valid.
1: I'm so glad this came up out of the conversation because I I fully agree. I'm someone who's about affirmations and the more I'm consistent in them, and I have this uh, same five or six that I I spool together and I repeat a couple times, usually in the shower or whenever, you know, in the morning. And I have found since I've gotten very consistent and daily disciplined in that, the things that have shown up that I wouldn't, wasn't even a sparkle in my eye or an idea even a couple weeks ago has been getting more and more momentum and more and more. Good things are showing up and there's more and more to be grateful for, of course, because yes. that's the momentum. Yes. Fantastic. Well, this has been lovely from a, that conversation. I'm glad we went in that direction. What's something that you have learned or a step you've taken to shorten your learning curve that our listeners might find helpful? And regardless of the type of work or project they're doing, they don't have to be a writer. But what is it that you can share with our listeners that could help them shorten their learning curve on something they're currently focused on?
0: You know, two things just spring to mind, and they're totally unrelated to each other. The first is, it, 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 and it kind of stems out of what you were just saying, Sharon, is years ago, like 40 years ago, or anyway, a long time ago, many decades ago, I, when I first started reading about, about a lot of the things we're discussing, I developed a habit of saying my thoughts out loud. Uh, I, I try not to do this when I'm walking down a busy street, but uh, was, you know, in, in the privacy of my room of my <laughs> at my desk... I'll say my thoughts out loud, speak my thoughts out loud, and, you know, my self-talk. We've all got self-talk. It's all happening all the time. But starting to hear myself, and I I would start to say out loud the ridiculous things that I say to myself, like, John, you're hopeless. This is never going to work. John, I have no idea. I have no idea how to write this book. I have nothing. These terrible negative things that, that we say, I started saying them out loud, and I would hear them. And when you hear it, you start to become aware of it. At least that's that way for me. And I think becoming aware of your own process, becoming aware of your own self-talk, becoming aware of the things you are telling yourself is enormously helpful. But the second thing, which is, again, unrelated, more pragmatic, when Charles and I decided to publish this book ourselves, again, it was something neither of us had done. We didn't know. We don't have the skill set. We don't have the experience. We don't have the expertise. We didn't have a lot of time to devote to learning it, the learning curve. One of the very first decisions that I made was, who am I going to listen to? I surrounded myself with, and I took about two weeks to figure out who am I going to surround myself with as my panel of experts, my mastermind, my group. I, I picked one book. There are thousands of books out there about how to promote your own book. I picked one that I trusted based on, on who the guy was, his track, his track record, friends of mine, what they said about it. I, just, I found this one book by Tim Grahl, G-R-A-H-L. I picked Tim's book became my Bible. I found one consultant in publishing that I decided to trust. And I paid her 300 bucks for a one hour phone conversation and then follow up emails. I tapped on a handful, you know, no more than five friends who had experience that I lacked, um, that I would go back to and back to and back to. And then I eventually developed a, a, a reader's group of, you know, 150 people that I, that I also, you know, used as a, as an early beta group, if you will, um, and who became also sort of my social media mouthpiece and my, my early buzz. But it was that, that first circle of experts, that panel of experts, mastermind group, I think in any endeavor, to me, that's maybe the single most valuable strategic move you can make is who are you going to listen to? And. And I've had to keep the definitions open because since then, in the six months since, I've expanded that group slightly. I've added a few more people, but I've added them very, very cautiously because uh, you don't want to dilute the message by by hearing too much uh, contradictory information.
1: That's really helpful. It's For me, it's about two things. What I heard you say is finding the people who you can learn from because there Mm -hmm. are people who have done it before, so why try and figure it out yourself when there are experts out there? But also being very cautious or specific about who those people are and not just listening to everyone and anyone, finding those few people because obviously 100 people, you could potentially get 100 opinions and you'll never get anything done with 100 opinions.
0: Right, because you can also get opinions that are valid and may be absolutely correct but may not apply to you perfectly.
1: Absolutely. So you know, really knowing who you're, who you want to learn from and why and how, and possibly I would assume even interviewing a mentor or, you know, in the process of finding someone to help you, making sure they are the right person yep, for that yep. specific task. So important. That's a great piece of advice. I love it. And the last question I really would love to hear from you. I love asking authors this more than anyone. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite book that you would recommend to anyone on? I don't care what topic, any topic, personal development, business, Anything that you think has really made a big difference in your life?
0: Oh, gosh. You know, um, I, I'm going to recommend one book by Seth Godin. Of course, I love all Seth's books. Who doesn't? How could you not love Seth Godin's books? Uh, one of his books, maybe lesser known, and it's very short, called The Dip, D-I-P. It's, it's about when it's a good idea to quit mm. and when it's a good idea to stick. Ooh. Um, th- that book is magnificent, as all his books are. But I lo- I'd recommend that book highly. The funny thing is, mostly what I write is nonfiction. Mostly what I read is fiction. And most in fiction, mostly what I read is mysteries. I love great mysteries. Um, And so my favorite book of all time is a book that I can't necessarily recommend to everybody because it may not be everyone's cup of tea, but it's called Behind the Scenes at the Museum. It's actually not a mystery. It's a novel. It's a a huge, sweeping novel uh, tracing a, a fictional woman's life from the moment of conception, literally. Oh, wow. The first sentence of the book is, I exist. It's <laughs> the moment she's conceived. And, Interesting. Uh, and uh, it's my, my number one favorite book of all time. I, I got to meet the author a few years ago on my birthday. I wrote about that in my blog. Uh, the universe just dropped her in, in the room I was standing in for, my, for his birthday present. That's my favorite novel um, of all time. And uh, I have a, a handful of favorite novelists but that's, uh, that's certainly my number one.
1: Wonderful. I spend so much of my time reading nonfiction that it's, yeah. I really should revisit. I used to read nothing but fiction. I used to travel for a living. I was a traveling consultant. I'd get on a plane, put my headphones in for music so I couldn't hear screaming babies, and then I'd just start reading. It was always fiction. Let and me, I don't know the last me. time I read a, non, a fiction book now. Well, let me
0: drop one more. Yeah. And that is One of my favorite writers is Neil Gaiman. Um, who wrote the the book that Stardust was based on and uh, and Coraline and a, a lot of, but he um, he wrote a, a little book called The Ocean at the End of the Lane. And when you read it, you think it's for kids, but you realize it's this is not really. It's about a very young boy. I don't think I w- ever would have written the recipe if I hadn't read The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Um, it's just one of the most beautiful and yet most powerful books you could imagine, and yet it's very simple.
1: Good. I like simple. I'm simple. Yep. That's wonderful. This is great. This has been an amazing conversation. I've had so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to get all the information for your book out there and ask our audience to be one of those 100 people that uh, reviews it on Amazon.
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Absolutely.
1: Thank you. (laughs) This has been a lot of fun, and I can't wait to see the success of this book.
0: Sharon, thanks a million. I so appreciate it. Uh,
1: Same to you, John. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening today. Tune in for our next episode. And in the meantime, you can get more resources at www.c-suiteresults.com. Make it a successful day.
0: Like what you just heard, visit c sweetradiocom C-Suite Radio, turning the volume
1: up on business.